Father, we do commit our time together to you, desiring that you would, in fact, oversee every aspect of it. We do praise you for the technology that allows us to, to meet and even meet with Sharon in Mexico and others. Just praise you for all the things that you've given us and for your word that uh, illumines and encourages and guides us that we may be accurate in our understanding of it and that we may clearly see what you have for us today. And we commit all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're back in uh, Romans. We spent a few weeks, three weeks, in a little bit of an excursus dealing with the doctrine of election. And the reason for that is because that is the underlying and in some verses very direct teaching of most of Romans chapter 9. But I thought it'd be useful to do that in order to kind of get a perspective on a particular choosing or election in what we have revealed in God's word. And that concerning Israel, which is a, a unique choosing. In fact, I gave you different categories of how we can fit a lot of these passages into these categories relating to these different areas where God has revealed to us that he has made choices. So we looked at the concept broadly, and now we're going to look at it a little bit more narrowly as we look into Israel being God's chosen or God's elect. And we were in verse 10 of chapter 9, and I just keep like, I like to keep reminding you that the book of Romans was written to several churches in the city of Rome. And this is just a model in Rome, one of the museums of ancient Rome, first century Rome. And some of the things you recognize, we were looking at that before we got started here, before people signed, before everybody signed in. And I kind of walked us through where we were able to walk on our trip. But besides that, in the first century, Paul would have visited many of the sites that we saw. And not when he wrote the book of Romans, he desired to, to visit, but because he could not visit on the third missionary journey, the next best thing, he writes them this letter. And just a quick overview, I've gone over this several times. We have the provision of God's righteousness, and man is lost. Man does not have any righteousness. There's none righteous, not even one. But God has provided his very own righteousness if we trust in him by faith and faith alone, not by works. And that raises the question at the end of chapter 8, because the Jews would have been aware that Gentiles were believing this message that Paul was teaching. And if they were reading this book, he's going to answer the issue concerning what's going on with Jewish people. And how can God, a righteous God, allow the dogs to partake in the privileges that are granted to the nation of Israel? So Paul is vindicating God's righteousness in chapters 9 through 11. We're looking at the portion in chapter 9 where 
He's explaining all the way back from the beginning of the nation of Israel how God has worked sovereignly, and that sovereign work involves choosing some over others. And he takes it all the way to Abraham, not mentioning the choice of Abraham. Abraham is mentioned in other passages as being chosen of God for a particular mission. But in this passage, we've already seen where the line doesn't go simply through all of the descendants of Abraham, but simply through Isaac. And not only Isaac, but the passage we're looking at more specifically, not through Esau, but through Jacob. So God is making choices. God is selecting and being selective. And that brings into play this concept of election. So Israel's choice by God is a sovereign choice. Well, how do we explain the fact that Gentiles are coming into the family of God, which is supposed to be Israel's privilege? And how is it that the majority of Jewish people in the first century rejected Jesus Christ and uh, in some way have lost something? So chapters 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10, he's going to explain that God has rejected and also sovereignly rejected Israel, but it's because of their own rejection of the Messiah and the gospel message. And in the period of time that Paul is writing, all the way to our time and even beyond, Israel is under discipline. So he's explaining that in the next major section. But God is not finished with Israel, and in fact, Israel has a future restoration where all of Israel shall be saved, which answers the the theological issue that the church has been misguided, and in many cases, the church has accepted a false teaching that the church has replaced Israel. That's replacement theology. That's not a biblical doctrine. In fact, it goes against everything that Paul is saying in chapters 9 through 11. So we reject that concept of replacement theology. So there is a future for Israel, and all Israel shall be saved. So the main issue of this section, 9 through 11, how do you explain the gospel going to Gentiles? And Paul is going to explain that. In fact, he's already given us a partial explanation in the verses we've already seen. He's also answering the issue concerning Israel as God's chosen people. Have they lost that? We haven't got to that portion, but he's going to, in chapter 11, explain that, no, they still have a future, but in the meantime, they're set aside, and God is working a work that is broad-based that includes the Gentiles as well. So Gentiles coming to God apart from the law, which would have been unthinkable in a Jewish mindset. So that's part of what this passage is dealing with. And in that, he's explaining the concept of God freely choosing Israel in the first place. And therefore, God is also free to choose Gentiles if he so pleases And he's free to set aside Israel on a temporary basis. So after an introduction, we've looked at the major divisions. And this is just an outline of the same chart. Provision of God's righteousness, chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of chapter 8. We're looking at the vindication of God's righteousness, 9 through 11. 
And we're in the section, God's past sovereign election of Israel. And he introduces this section by mourning, you might say, or his great sorrow, extreme sorrow over the fact that some Jewish people have rejected the Messiah and as a result are losing out on the salvation that has, that God has available for them. He reviews their privileges and because of those privileges, he's vindicating his sorrow because Israel as a nation is not partaking in those privileges because of their rejection of the Messiah. So he's going to vindicate God's word, 6 through 13. That's the portion that we're in right now. The word of God has not failed in terms of the promises that God made. And what's in view primarily is the Abrahamic promise that eventuates into the Abrahamic covenant. So he goes back to Abraham and shows that God sovereignly made distinctions all the way from the very beginning of the nation of Israel. In the family of Abraham, Isaac is chosen over Ishmael. That's verses 6 through 9, and then 10 through 13, where we'll pick up. It even uh, goes further than just simply Isaac. The nation of Israel comes through Jacob rather than Esau. So that's verses 10 through 13. And we could summarize with a chart here. The dark blue is all of Israel, and that would include ethnic, in other words, all descendants of Jacob. Now, this brings us to the first century, which this is what he's dealing with in this passage. And he begins to introduce the concept of God selecting some and passing over others by saying that not all in the first century are necessarily Israel that includes all of the descendants through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would be ethnic or national Israel. So it's not every descendant of Abraham, but those simply through Isaac and then through more specifically Jacob. And the true Israel, he describes in these passages as the children of God. They're the children of promise and they are within the broader circle. This is how you would view first century Israel. So there's only a, those are only some within the nation that have trusted in Messiah. That would include the early believers, the early disciples, the early Jewish Christians. So he's not dealing with Gentiles. He's not dealing with the church. He doesn't even get to the Gentiles until chapter 9, verse 24 through 30, where he's going to begin to explain God selecting some Gentiles, much like he selected the, the nation of Israel, and then even more specifically, regenerate Israel, the light blue circle in the uh, the chart there. So in the passage, the first thing that we can learn about God's election in chapter 9, and this comes from the distinctions made between the sons, God's election is not based solely on physical or natural descent. In other words, it's not just those that are descendant of Abraham, but God makes a choice very specifically, not just physical and natural descent. It in includes other issues as well. 
Then we saw in verse 10, he transitions to the next generation. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. And I'm not going to spend too much time. We've already looked at this verse. Let's just kind of summarize it and then move into verse, actually verse 11 and 12, 13 and 14. So Rebecca also, and he reminds us when she had conceived twins, this is Genesis 25, by one man, our father Isaac which is a little bit different than the distinction that was made between Isaac and Ishmael. Remember, there were two mothers, but this conceived by one man. In fact, one act, you might even say, literally from the the Greek text, and specifically through Isaac. So we have twins referring to Genesis 25, one act, conception, twins. And if you want to chart the genealogy, We already saw Abraham bearing Ishmael, but he's not the choice. The choice is through Isaac via Sarah. And then now we have Rebekah, and she has twins, Jacob and Esau, and the line will go through Jacob. And in fact, later on, Jacob will be renamed, and his new name will be Israel. So we have the choice of Jacob over Esau, verse 10. We have the conception of the twins, verses 11 through 13. The commentary relating to the twins, the commentary relating to election, 11 through 13. So beginning in verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born, and this gives us some significant principles relating to this doctrine, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, There's a principle we can learn from that. Goes on, so that God's purpose, and here's kind of the key passage or the key uh, subordinate clause, you might say, in this longer sentence, the key idea in chapter 9, basically, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. And when we got to that word there, his choice, that's one of the words within that word group that sometimes could be translated, his elect or his election would stand. So in the broader purpose of God, in the will of God, we looked at those concepts, God made choices. So we did an extensive word study on the passages within that word group. And I mentioned that there's some other words involved as well. They don't occur as frequently, but uh, we spent some time looking at that word. And the word in this context is a noun form, ekloge, which is just the idea of choosing something, the noun form, or a choice that was made. And just kind of a summary, the conclusion that I came to in terms of personal and individual election relating to the believer, the only reason I mention this is because I'm going to contrast it, well, not contrast it, but compare it maybe with a different kind of election that we have in Romans 9. And I gave you two different views, and the conclusion I came to, maybe not all of you will agree with it, but by God's grace, in eternity past, based on the Ephesians 1-4 passage, by God's grace, in eternity past, and we're going to see these elements in this passage relating to Israel, but this one relates to believers in the church age. By God's grace, in eternity past, he sovereignly chose some in Christ 
And you might even add, passing over others, sovereignly chose some in Christ without regard to anything in man. So it's not God in foreknowledge looking ahead and choosing those that would choose him. The choice is based on his sovereign choice, regardless of anything in man. Now, question. Go ahead. Uh, you're not... Uh saying that he chose some to to be in Christ, you're saying he chose some in Christ. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. But I would also say both. In other words, I would say in my contrast, I would include individual selection or individual election as well. But you're not saying that's what that says. The Ephesians, Ephesians not, 1 4. You're not saying to be in Christ. That's not what that says. No, right? no, it does not say that. Okay. That's all I wanted to Okay. Make yeah, no problem. Now, this is just kind of the conclusion I came to when we came to the end of our study last time. We looked at election in terms of church age believers, and that's where the controversy lies and the differences that I brought out. But now, remember, I also talked about a different category, and what we have in Romans 9 is a different category of election, Israel chosen. And I'd like to kind of expand that. We didn't have time to expand it, but it's appropriate to expand it here. The concept of Israel being chosen, and there's lots of verses. I didn't count them, but I don't know, 40, 50 verses relating to Israel and Israel's being chosen. In many of those places, we have the Hebrew word that is the equivalent to the Greek word that we have in the New Testament. Bachar, the, the, the Hebrew word that we've been stressing throughout. In fact, I gave you several passages. We didn't look at some of these specifically. But let me just kind of summarize. And there's other verses relating to this concept of Israel being chosen. Now, normally, if we were in a class, I would have some of you look these up, but I think it's going to get a little bit time-consuming and a little little laborious. In fact, let me put some of the other ones on here. Maybe some of you could look these up and I could have you read them. But if not, if, if somebody has looked up one or one of these or some of the others, uh, let me know and I'll let you read them. But for the sake of simplicity here, let me start off with Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. And we have the source of Israel's election, you might say. For you are a holy, or actually Moses speaking, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. This is Moses. The Lord your God has chosen you. Bachar, there's the Hebrew word. God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Now, even right there, it's we have the idea of a people, not an individual. So you have a corporate idea there. A people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God chose a people In fact, he created that people through Abraham and what he's already talked about in this passage, through Isaac, through Jacob. God chose to create a nation 
in Deuteronomy 7.6 indicates that for his own possession. So the source is God himself. Verse 7 goes on. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose. There's Bachar again. Choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. In other words, it was not based on these descendants as opposed to any other nation, but it was what is hinted at here is God made a selection simply out of his sovereign choice. For you are the fewest of the peoples. And then verse 8, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers alluding back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the source is God himself. Chapter 4 of Deuteronomy 4.37, I don't have it on the slide there, but because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And again, it's in the plural. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. He's speaking of them corporately as a nation. And the source is God himself. Anyone have the intent there? Does anybody have Psalm 135.4? Blurt it out if you do. Okay. Psalm 135.4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Now he's using Jacob. This is poetic. And then the next line, Israel for his own possession. Synonymous parallelism. Jacob parallel with Israel. I think it's corporate there. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. That's the intent. God desired to work through and to keep as his own a particular people, a people that would be different from all of the other nations. Anyone have Deuteronomy 14.2? Blurt it out. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Okay. And there's the idea, if you read the context, the idea of separating. In other words, a distinction. They are to be a holy people, a separate people. For you are a holy people to the Lord. And then he uses Bachar again. The Lord has chosen you. And you have the idea of his own possession again. That's the intent that God would possess them as his own people. Did anyone uh, look up Amos 3 2? Go ahead. Uh, here's, and I'm starting at one. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, 3.2, it says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So they are not only a separate, holy, you might say, distinct people, but because of that, they also have a responsibility before God. And Amos, writing towards the end of their history, before they go into captivity, God announces, in fact, this isn't the first time, but I use this one because it has the word Bachar again in its verbal form. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth and the concept of you are accountable and I will punish you as well. 
And what's implied and what Amos is drawing out is the idolatry and the sin of the nation in that time frame. So these are a people that are chosen not just for blessing, but they have a responsibility and they have accountability. And in fact, when they fail, they experience God's discipline. And it anticipates a discipline that will come in uh, some years when they go into exile. Now, in the midst of their idolatry, God also assures them that they have security. That's Isaiah 44. Did anyone get that one? Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Notice the word bachar two times in that passage, but notice the security also, the security that is in view in uh, Isaiah 44, 1 and 2. And this is in the midst of their sin and idolatry. They will be disciplined, but it's not going to be an eternal or a casting aside kind of discipline. And it also even anticipates not just the Babylonian captivity, but eventually it would look forward to the first century where they would be disciplined once again. So, Ray, may I ask you a question? Go ahead. Uh, so was there a difference uh, in the relationship with Israel where he would punish them as opposed to the relationship that he has with the with the church where he talks about he will discipline us because he loves us? I think the distinction is, one, the same distinction that I'm making in terms of the concept of choosing. The distinction is when we're talking about Israel, you need to think corporately, primarily. So when he's talking about discipline, he's talking about a national discipline. And if you go forward to to 70 AD, when the nation was destroyed, it was a national destruction. But yet there were individual Jewish people, the early believers of the early church, that in fact escaped. Well, they didn't escape necessarily the physical consequences, but uh, they experienced God's justification, you might say, or God's salvation. So the difference The Hebrews 12 passage that speaks of discipline, I think that is more individual. In other words, as individuals, we will face discipline or the potential of discipline if we are unfaithful to the Lord. Does that answer your question? Well, yeah, that's helpful. And I I, I, I got to I got to think about that more really to to, uh, appreciate it. But yeah, one of the things I am making a distinction of in terms of election I do say that chapter 9 deals with Israel in general as a corporate unit, as a national entity, Israel's choosing. Now, the question is, does this extend? In other words, is there a principle that is similar in terms of individual? And I tend to think, yes, that it's not exclusively and only corporate, but it extends individually, particularly to believers in the church age. Now, some of you may disagree with that. And like we said last time, you're to be a Berean and check these things out. 
Okay, we have a purpose in Isaiah 43.7. Anyone have that one? Um, okay, so this is part of the chapter where God is talking about bringing them back mm-hmm. from exile. Yes. Um, and so verse 6 says, I will call, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And then seven talks about his purpose. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So again, he's talking about the nation of Israel. Yes. um, That he formed for his purpose and his glory. Yes. And that's the purpose ultimately of their choosing And their calling is the word that he uses in this concept. So I think there's this broader, bigger picture that God has chosen a people to ultimately bring him glory. And there's lots of other verses that include the idea of the glory of God. And I would attach it to the very beginning when God made a choice. Now, there's some other passages, uh, the corporate aspect I've already stressed that in some of these other passages, but a specific passage, 1 Kings 3, 8. I didn't give you time to look that one up, so let me read it. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have, Bahar, you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. A great people, kind of corporately, he's talking about them, in the plural again, and there's other verses as well. Psalm 105, 6, O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, corporately, bachar, the Hebrew term there. And then uh, finally, in Romans 9, he's not talking about individual salvation. The nation is chosen And he's separating. In other words, he's distinguishing within Israel, corporately is chosen. But in Romans chapter 9, the passage that we're looking at, he's making a distinction even within that chosen group. And the one that he's focusing on are those that have been set aside, particularly in chapter 9, who have been uh, set aside. He's going to show that they're responsible for that when we get into the next part, beginning, what is it, in verse 930, I believe, where he's going to speak in terms of Israel being responsible for rejecting Messiah, and as a result, they are set aside. So he's talking about them corporately in terms of election, but in terms of individual salvation, he's making a distinction between Israel nationally, ethnically, and true Israel, which would involve individuals that had trusted, and he's going to include himself in the discussion later on. So here are several passages, and these are just kind of representative in these different categories that I've set up that speak of Israel in terms of God's choosing. So we can come to another principle of God's election here, and particularly from uh, verse 11, 9-11, God's election is part of his sovereign purposes, 
And in this context, his sovereign purposes in relationship to the nation of Israel. And the little phrase there, so that God's purpose, according to his election, you could even translate, would stand. In other words, it is established in terms of national Israel, but even that you have a layer within national Israel where on an individual basis you have believers within Israel that are true Israel. And then he specifies, not because of works. Now this kind of reminds of what he said in in verse the beginning of verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. In other words, it wasn't based on anything within these individuals, but the purpose stands, the purpose, the electing purpose, you might even say, and it's not because of works, but because of him who calls. And this introduces us in terms of Israel. It's not dependent on man's works. Now, the issue again in all of these is how many of these principles are also applicable to church age individuals. Now, specifically in Romans 9, he's not dealing with that. But I would say there's other passages elsewhere that would indicate that perhaps some of these principles, uh, number one excluded, but maybe number two and number three would be applicable to individuals in the church age as well, not dependent on man's works. In other words, God's sovereign choice. I think that's the theme throughout chapter 9. It's dependent on God who calls. It's because of him who calls. So that leads us to the last part of the sentence. And by the way, the sentence starts in verse 10. Remember when we looked at this several weeks ago, I gave you the essence of this whole sentence. It doesn't end till the end of chapter or verse 12, rather. It was said to her, in other words, this is the biblical basis that Paul uses to bring home this concept of the purposes of God, the electing purposes of God, and how they stand. And the biblical support is that Genesis 25 passage where it was said to her, going back to Rebecca, verse 10, the older will serve the younger. And keep in mind, even within that passage, he didn't quote the whole passage There's a part of the verse that says there are two nations in in your womb, giving the idea of this corporate idea. He's speaking in terms of Jacob and Esau as representatives of a whole slew of descendants that would eventuate in two nations, the nation of Israel and through Esau, the Edomites. The older will serve the younger. And even this passage, it's hard to find within the book of Genesis where Esau actually served Jacob. So I think it's looking ahead. But in their history, you can see that the Edomites on many occasions historically were servants, you might say, or uh, in subjection to the nation of, of Israel. So the older will serve the younger just adding, this is Genesis twenty-five twenty-three that's quoted here, and the quotation, the older will serve the younger. So we can go back to our little chart here. The line goes through Isaac, 
not through Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau. And then in Romans 9, the point that Paul is making is we have descendants in the first century, verses 6 through 13, where we have the big circle, ethnic Israel, national Israel. In other words, all the descendants of Jacob, that is Israel. And within ethnic Israel are those in the first century that have believed in the Messiah. And I think Paul is identifying them in this passage as true Israel. And those would be members of the the body of Christ. But there is Israelites, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what's in view in Romans 9, 6 through 13. Then he concludes the paragraph, just as, as it is written. In other words, he expands his biblical support. He chooses a passage, first of all, in verse 12, out of the first book of the Bible, from the very beginning of the nation of Israel. And then he quotes, just as it is written, he quotes out of the last book of the Bible, and that one comes out of Malachi, or the Old Testament, that is, last book of the Old Testament, kind of encompassing the entire history of Israel from its beginning in Jacob, with Esau being set aside. And then the Malachi passage that he quotes is at the towards the end of their history, and it's Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, where he's talking about Israel and Edom as nations. So he's continuing to emphasize this corporate aspect. And let me just read those pass those two verses there. Well, let me start with one because it begins. We have the introduction to all of Malachi, the oracle of the word of the Lord to, to Israel through Malachi. He's speaking to the nation. The whole book is addressed to them. And keep in mind, this is a post-exilic prophet. So this is Israel that has returned to the land and even in returning, Malachi is a prophet that is reprimanding the nation even after they've returned after the exile. And notice what he says in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. And then verse 3, But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. So in Malachi, he is introducing both Jacob and Esau. And if you read through Malachi, he's actually not talking about the individuals. He's talking about Israel and Edom. He's talking about the nations, even though he's identifying the individuals where they originate from. So the individuals in Malachi represent a representative of the corporate national entity, Israel and the Edomites. And he's going to talk about that. And through history, there has been a conflict between the Israelites and the Edomites. And in general, the Israelites have dominated the Edomites. So he's taking a passage from the last book of the Bible and emphasizing the idea of Jacob. I loved, and if you think in terms of the, the context here, he's talking about in God's electing purposes, 
he loves some and he treats others as if they are hated, which is a interesting concept here. But Esau, I hated. Now, scholars are divided as to what is in view here. Uh, some kind of emphasize there does seem to be something of a, of a Hebrew idiom where you put the two together and simply contrast. In other words, a love for one that is in comparison to the hate of another. And that's a possible idea here. Kind of along those same lines, you do have an example in Genesis 29, 31, where you have the idea of one being loved and the other one being loved less. This is within the family of Jacob. Remember, he had Rachel and Leah. And if you remember the story, remember, he worked for Laban for seven years and he was promised Rachel. But then at the last minute, Leah, who was less loved, and there's indication that Jacob didn't literally and emotionally hate Leah. But in comparison, the comparison of the love that he had for Rachel was such a difference that in that context, it speaks of Jacob in Genesis 29, 31, loving Rachel and the word hate, the Hebrew word is used in that context in terms of Leah. So it has the idea of loving one and not loving the other to the same extent or to love less. But I think it's stronger, and there's lots of contexts where this contrast has a stronger idea than simply loving less. And in fact, even in terms of of God himself, we won't look these up for the sake of time, but if you want to jot them down, Psalm 5.5, Jeremiah 44.4, where God is in view of loving and hating and it's used in this stronger sense in in terms of the, the treatment of God in terms of the wicked. That's Psalm 5.5. 5. God hates wickedness and those that partake in it. I'll let you read that. And even within Israel, God hates their idolatry in, in such a way that uh, there is action that is taken. So I think the word or the the concept here is a little bit stronger than simply loving less. And in the treatment of the two, historically, you can see a definite blessing of Jacob and over the same historical time frame, a rejection. So you have a love and a rejection or an acceptance and a rejection of one over the other And I'm inclined to take that verse in this stronger sense of the rejection of Esau. And it's also in the same context. So I think that's what's in view in this passage. And that'll bring us into another principle of God's choice or God's election. It's rooted in his grace and love. Remember, it's not based on... Anything in Jacob, and if you know the story of Jacob, Jacob was a kind of a rascal, basically. He was a trickster. He, he tricked his brother out of the birthright, and you see him as a deceiver. In fact, his name means supplanter. He supplanted his brother. So it's not that Jacob was this godly individual. In fact, in the record, there, 
There's very little in his life that reflects godliness. And yet God chose him, not because of anything in him, but it's rooted in his grace. And then here's a verse that indicates that God loved him. In other words, God bestowed love. God bestowed grace and love upon Jacob and withheld that even to the extent that it seemed like he hated Esau. So that brings us to the end of verse 13, where the word of God is vindicated. And that leads to the next argument that Paul is going to bring, beginning in verse 14, all the way through verse 18. And this is probably a good place for us to stop for today. Let me just introduce it. Where now he's going to get into, well, this doesn't sound fair. This doesn't sound, there's something doesn't seem right here. In fact, this is a natural reaction to the broader concept of election. And when we come back, one of the points that I will try to make is that, yes, 9, 14 through 18 is dealing with Israel and dealing with Israel corporately. But do we see the same concept when it comes to individual election and is there such a thing and remember one of the contrasts is there are some that see election in terms of the corporate aspect when it comes to believers during the church age as well so we'll talk some more about the justice of god verse 14 he raises the issue of god's justice and we'll look at that next time what shall we say then And if you reflect on Jacob and Esau, you know, God loves one and not the other. This seems unfair. God is treating one with with uh, goodness and blessing and the other he is rejecting. And you can see it historically. Can we come to some conclusion concerning the justice of God and the answer that he gives here? There is no injustice with God. Is there? The implied answer to the question is the answer that Paul gives. May it never be. So uh, why don't we leave it there and we'll pick up next time at the beginning of this next paragraph, beginning in verse 14, and try to look at it from the perspective of an objection that some may have. And I think it's relevant to us as well because this seems to be the same concept that is in view if God selects some for salvation in the church age, some individuals, and passes over others. This seems to be unfair, and we touched on it when we were looking at the broader doctrine, but uh, we'll look at it from uh, the perspective of Israel in terms of Romans chapter 9. Any comments or questions before we close? And would somebody care to be ready to close for us? No comments? Everybody happy? Well, Ray, I have a comment. Um, so in the outline, you list the, uh, uh, that the word of God is vindicated. So is vindication, uh, are you talking about, um, that the explanation of God, how he chooses, is that the vindication? Because he is sovereign? Yes. In other words, yeah, I see the theme of vindication throughout chapters 9 through 11. In other words, the Jew is going to say, you know, this doesn't seem right. It seems that God 
by allowing the Gentiles is doing something that is unrighteous. In other words, by faith and faith alone, apart from the law, that doesn't seem right. And what about all of the promises to Israel and God's chosen people? And now, Paul, you're saying that Jews and Gentiles can both come into a relationship with God. Aren't we privileged people? And in chapters 9 through 11, he's basically vindicating, no, God is perfectly righteous. God is not unfair. God is not unjust. That's what he'll look at specifically beginning verse 14. So he's vindicating the righteousness of God in light of a Jewish objector that might say, well, this doctrine of grace, it's unbiblical. So he defends the word of God. It goes against God's justice. So now he's going to vindicate God's justice. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other comments? Anyone care to close for us? I will. Heavenly Father, we look at your word and we see that at the cross, things changed. And uh, Father, we are grateful that we live post-cross. We are grateful that you are at work in our lives. We are grateful that you are calling and drawing us, inviting us to join you in the work that you are doing now. So we give you praise, we give you thanks, we give you glory, and we plead that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might be faithful and obedient servants in all that we do. We thank you and praise you in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Anyone want to say goodbye to everybody or wave or whatever? Goodbye, everybody. See you later. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, Jody. More questions for me. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Craig. We'll see you later. See you all. Jody, Andy, Jim.